Aloha. You're listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. I've been recording the audiobook for Dangerous Love the past few weeks, and I've been wondering what chapter might be the most helpful to share with you before the book comes out. Whenever I talk about the concept of dangerous love, there's always pushback from people who feel that the fairest thing to have happen is for the other person, the person that caused the conflict, to turn first. If you've had those questions listening to the Dangerous Love podcast, reading our blogs, or following us on social media the past few months, I hope this helps. The chapter is called Waiting for Them to Turn. Chapter 13, Waiting for Them to Turn. You can't get to courage without walking through vulnerability. Brene Brown. I had the world's worst math teacher in high school. He was strict to a fault, impatient, and punishing. He would call us to the front of the class using our last names. Ford, get up here! and then demand that we solve equations that we hadn't learned yet. As we stood at the chalkboard struggling to solve the math problems of the day, he would mock us. Then, after we were completely humiliated, he would walk to the board, quickly solve the equation, and then ask us if we were really ready for 11th grade. I hated him. I wanted revenge. I found out his birthday was coming in a week, and I had an idea. Our math teacher wasn't exactly a ladies' man. He was single and out of shape, sported an unsightly comb-over, and dressed like he had raided his wardrobe from the Saturday Night Fever set. His most salient feature was the hideous ties he'd wear with his polyester suits each day. The plan. I would go to a thrift store and acquire the fattest, ugliest, most garish tie I could find. On his birthday, I would wrap it in a box and then leave it on his desk just before class with a note that said, Open me. My dream was that he'd open it with enthusiasm, see the hideous tie in the box, and then be humiliated the same way we were always embarrassed in front of the whole class. On the day of his birthday, my plan began to unfold perfectly. He had left the classroom to use the restroom just before the period began. I carefully set the box on his desk and then sat in my chair filled with anticipation. He walked in and immediately noticed the box on his desk. He asked the class who put the box there. We all shook our heads like we didn't know. He picked up the box and examined it. He read the note that said simply, open me. He was curious and asked the class if he should open it. We all nodded eagerly. He opened the box, reached in, and pulled out the enormous clown tie. Just as we were ready to burst into laughter, something unexpected happened. Our teacher began to choke up. He ran the tie between his fingers, struggling to hold back his tears. There was an uncomfortable silence in the class. We had no idea this monster had tear ducts. Finally, he held up the tie before the class and said, I don't know who gave me this birthday gift, he said, his voice cracking. But I just want you to know that I've been teaching for nearly 30 years. And in all that time, no student has ever given me a birthday gift before. This means so much to me. Thank you so much 
I love it. Then, overcome with emotion, he ran out of the room. We all sat there, stunned. He loved the tie. The joke had backfired. He didn't know he was part of an elaborate prank. He actually thought we had intended to give him a gift. I felt about one foot tall. Several minutes later, he came back into the classroom and reiterated how much the gift meant to him and how grateful he was to us. I didn't have words. A funny thing happened over the next few months. He began calling us by our first names. He began teaching us the math before asking us to do it on the board. We started learning. He actually became a really good teacher. On the last day of class, he told us all, you all are the best class I've ever taught. Thank you so much for a wonderful year. I love you all. Strangely, we loved him too. Talk about conflict transformation. But here's the thing. I didn't do anything to transform the conflict. I was no Mahatma Gandhi. I just had dumb luck. In fact, I was trying to escalate the collusion. I wanted to humiliate the teacher. He was just so clueless he thought an insincere gesture was meant to heal the breach. Just the idea that someone cared about him was enough to change the way he saw us and himself. His humanity burst through my self-deception, inviting me to turn. Easy love isn't the way. The sort of love that I started feeling for my teacher wasn't dangerous love. It was easy love. It was a gift. I didn't have to let go of anything to receive it. This situation has happened to all of us. Through no real effort of our own, sometimes we are overpowered by the humanity of others. It hits us like a tsunami. For example, we find out that a former friend has cancer and the grudge that we are holding melts away. We get a small peek into the enormous challenges of another's life and suddenly all judgment dissipates. Or maybe we're on the internet and we see people in places like Haiti who are suffering and we think to ourselves, I want to click that link and donate. Even the blindest of us can be healed by the humanity of others. We don't have to do anything at all except wait for people to get sick, to have his or her life fall apart, or for an earthquake or a tornado to hit. People's humanity can overcome even the deepest forms of justification and self-deception. But easy love has an obvious downside. Conflict is still out of my control. Easy love is still weak and self-absorbed. Even smog-filled cities have days of sunshine when the air is clear. Easy love reinforces the idea that I cannot change until the conditions around me change. The idea feeds into the hopelessness that already besets us in conflict. Waiting for some outside force to act upon us isn't dangerous love. Yes, it offers a way out of conflict, but that way requires something horrible to happen to someone else. What happens if an estranged friend never gets sick? Or in the case of an old high school friend whom I had a falling out with, he gets cancer, and I don't learn about it until after he dies. What happens if I don't follow the news? Or I'm so disconnected from others that their humanity can't reach me? The easy way is what we all hope for, I think. It's similar to the story people tell me when they come into my office. We want help without effort, 
We want someone or something else to make peace. So we wait and we complain and the peace never comes. Have my math teacher actually understood the cruel intentions behind my gift? Do you think the situation in the class would have gotten better on its own? My estranged friend died without ever hearing me say I'm sorry. He died without my knowing whether he forgave me. I still have so much I want to say to him. But saying those things now, after he is gone, doesn't completely heal the breach. The easy way leaves us at the whim of fate. It decouples our ability to choose from the conflicts and relationships we struggle with. Other tried and untrue methods of change. Several other easy love approaches are worth mentioning. All of them are popular. They are forcing, using threats or punishment or even violence, coping, deciding to be a martyr and suffer in silence, leaving, changing roommates or jobs or communities, more communication, taking a communication class on how to talk to your partner. Unfortunately, they rarely work if I'm stuck in the smog mindset and still seeing the other person as an it. The Arbinger Institute refers to these approaches as dead ends in leadership and self-deception. None of them, when we still see people as its, have the power to transform conflict. Ultimately, what all four of these methods have in common is the I will fix this by trying to change them approach. That's not dangerous love. When changing others is really about making my life better, not theirs. That's selfish love. Forcing. Forcing change, or put more politely, correcting, is the go-to move for many. If we are seeing others as it's, we've likely concluded that they are the problem and therefore they have to change. If they aren't willing on their own to change, then we'll help them along. Competitors love forcing as an option. Threats, ultimatums, punishment, shunning, shaming, the cold shoulder, sanctions, boycotts, strikes, war. All of these are tools to try to end conflict. And in virtually all such circumstances, how did it go? Did others change? For most, the answer is no. In cases where the answer is yes, was the change sustainable? Or did you have to keep applying pressure or force to make the change stick? If the change was forced, I'd submit that the change you saw wasn't a change at all. When we are forced to change, the change typically is only superficial. The minute someone quits applying force, we revert back to the way we were before. Coping. Coping is when we tell ourselves, I will just ignore the problem and suffer silently. As long as there is no overt conflict, all is well. We hope that eventually the person or people we are in conflict with will see us suffering, have pity on us, and change. Accommodators often embrace this approach. But are others really going to change if they see us as its? They'll likely think that we deserve our suffering or that any harm they are causing is justified. The more we suffer, the more justification they need to create to reduce the dissonance. Coping with others is popular advice for the suck it up crowd. Keep your eyes closed and your mouth shut and everything will be fine. But coping can feed some powerful justifications. For example, now. Not only are the people I'm in conflict with bad people, but they're bad people who have no empathy, whom I must suffer for, who are going to make the situation better. Leaving. Another strategy that we employ is leaving. 
People break up, divorce, move, or change jobs. In the larger socio-political context, they build walls and segregate, sometimes willfully, just to get away. Avoiders often employ this strategy. Why doesn't leaving work? It begins with the premise that other people are the problem and that the solution is to somehow exclude them from our lives. We change them by controlling how they interact with us on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes leaving is the right answer. For example, no one should stay in an abusive relationship. Boundaries are an important part of any relationship, and sometimes they need to be strictly enforced. Going outside and taking a walk and a few deep breaths before having a difficult conversation can be a good idea as well. Nevertheless, the very act of leaving supposes that leaving changes the way we see others and the way they see us. Leaving can be helpful if we've transformed the way we see others beforehand, but in the midst of a collusion, it often reinforces our negative beliefs. More communication. If coping seems unbearable and leaving appears impossible, another common, seemingly more enlightened approach often is advocated, more communication. For years, conflict resolution and counseling professionals have argued that dialogue can be effective in dissolving stereotypes and prejudice, creating empathy between people and groups. The idea makes sense. The more people talk, the theory goes, the more they get to see each other as people. Perceptions change, which leads to understanding, then acceptance, and ultimately empathy. Communication on its surface may appear to be collaboration, but it really depends on how we're seeing the people we're communicating with. No one is against communication or empathy. However, the kind of communication is what really matters here. We can communicate in two ways, and how I see you will often determine how my communication is received and what you'll communicate in return. If I'm communicating to you that you are a problem, that I'm the victim, or I'm right and you're wrong, then the communication has the potential to make matters worse, not better. You'll be defensive and communicate blame back to me, and the communication becomes nothing more than fuel for the fire of collusion. Using communication as a way of understanding others so that we can change how we see them is much more effective. But we rarely get to transformation by starting at communication. We need to start deeper. Arbinger founder Terry Warner writes, We do not make progress in our way of being by working hard to make events go our way, or by using all of our wit and skill to outmaneuver or overpower others to make them bend to our will. We get nowhere by forcing onto them our plan for making ourselves happy. Good things do start to happen as soon as we open ourselves to the light or truth that flows to us from others. We have to change the direction of the flow, not wait for others. Conflict reconciliation expert John Paul Lederach once asked, Which way will the water flow that defines our relationship, toward the shore of fear or that of love? When the water flows toward fear, the relationship is defined by recrimination and blame, self-justification and protection, violence and the desire for victory over other. When the water flows toward love, it is defined by openness and accountability, self-reflection and vulnerability, mutual respect, dignity, 
and the proactive engagement of the other. Dangerous love gets the water flowing in the only direction that will actually give us lasting solutions to the problems that beset us. Thanks for listening. The entire audiobook will be available via Audible to pre-order in a few weeks and will be released on June 23rd, the same time as the print and ebook. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our Instagram page at Dangerous Love Book, our Facebook page at Dangerous Love Book, our Loving Dangerously community on Facebook, and our website, DangerousLoveBook.com for the latest blogs, videos, and ordering information for the book. You've been listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha. Aloha.